Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics Uncensored. I'm your host, Ali Milani, here on Fubar Radio. We have a bit of a different kind of show uh, this week. So rather than having uh, a show on a specific theme, uh, we've got two really interesting guests uh, that are going to be joining me to talk about um, some really, really critical issues happening uh, around the country. Of course, it is by-election week uh, as as uh, people around the country go to the polls uh, to vote in the by-elections. That includes uh, my old uh, constituency home, Uxbridge and South Ryslip, uh, uh, as well as others. So we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about Boris Johnson and whether something called Long Boris Johnson uh, exists. We'll talk about the illegal migration bill and Islamophobia um, in the studio uh, in a moment. Uh, we'll be later joined by Carmel Ahmed, a journalist at The Guardian covering international development. Uh, he has authored a new book called I Feel No Peace, Rohingya Fleeing Overseas and Rivers. We're going to be talking to him about uh, not just the Rohingya crisis, but the, the, the international crises happening around the world and what we can do as a country uh, and as different citizens. But before we get to him, we have the week unwrapped. This is the part of the show where we talk about the biggest uh, pieces of news uh, around the country uh, with guests uh, from different spheres in our politics uh, from across the country. Uh, and this week we are joined by Miqdad Versi, Director for Media Monitoring at the Muslim Council of Britain. Miqdad, thank you so much for joining me. Can you hear me okay? So we've got Miqdad uh, joining us via Zoom and we're going to talk about some of the big stories in the media this week. And that includes and starts with uh, the by-elections happening around the country. So the Conservative Party is supposedly suffering from long Boris, a senior Tory MP has said amid mounting concerns that the party will lose three by-elections this week. On Thursday, which is today, the Tories have uh, faced the by-elections in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Somerton and Frum, and Selby and Ainsty. If the party lose all three seats, it would be the first. It would be the worst result for any governing political party since 1968. Steve Bryan, a senior Tory MP and chairman of the Health Selects Committee, told Westminster Hour on BBC Radio Four that the Tories were suffering from Long Boris in Uxbridge. Uh, I think everybody in Uxbridge and South Ryslip has been <laughs> suffering from a very, very long Boris Johnson. I can attest to that personally. Uh, he also said that Adam's decision to quit would cost the party votes. Now, bear in mind that if the Conservatives lose. Uxbridge and South Ryslip, that would have been the seat of the former Prime Minister. Uh, but also Sel- Selby and Ainsty and Somerton and Frome are some of the biggest majorities that a governing party could lose uh, in since the Second World War. Mirdad, thank you so much for joining us. We have Mirdad Versi, the Director for Media Monitoring at the Muslim Council of Britain. Mirdad, you've done a lot of work specifically around Boris Johnson um, and uh, some of his controversial comments, particularly the Islamophobic comments uh, that he has made. What do you make of what might be a landmark moment today, and that's the end of Boris Johnson's political career, at least for the foreseeable future? At least in this seat. Who knows? Thank you very much for having me, um, Ali, and uh, thank you for uh, this opportunity to chat about this really important topic. I I think it's going to be really interesting. I mean, what 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 we're going to see, hopefully, is um, the people of Uxbridge uh, and South Ryslip sharing their, their views. And, you know, one of the big things here is um, historically, Boris Johnson has been framing himself as someone who's very popular, someone who has been able to sh- change the country and to get, you know, the entire country behind him and to get an 80-seat majority. This is a test to say whether in his area, in the place where he is supposed to be the MP, 
whether he actually has any popular support, whether in actual fact, in his own backyard, whether he can hold off um, uh, the, the, the Labour likely um, a victory. And I think actually that's a really good indicator of perhaps a broader current of whether the, the right in the Conservative Party who, who say that Boris Johnson should not have been um, taken, taken out uh, he should not have uh, been been removed from 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 office because it's a a, a democratic deficit in that sense. Let's see let's see what mm. democracy shows. I think so it's I think notable. That's, that's I think it's notable that so Boris Johnson has not once campaigned with a conservative candidate, Steve Tuckwell, in Uxbridge and South Ryslip. Uh, they haven't had him on the campaign trail. No, um, do you think that's an indication of his popularity? Because Boris has always been a divisive figure. Uh, he's always been a bit marmite. Uh, you know, members of the public either love him or hate him. He very rarely gets uh, apathy towards him. But clearly the conservative election strategy in Uxbridge and South Ryslip has been to distance themselves from Boris Johnson. And, and the Labour strategy is the opposite, I guess. So, yeah. so, you know, I think whilst they're trying to make it not about Boris Johnson, everyone's talking about it as if it is Boris Johnson, even if it's not him. And so I think that, you know, we have to see what this demonstrates to us as a or, or to the right and, and i know that everyone will try and make their excuses in advance everyone's trying to manage expectations everyone's trying mm -hmm. to create their own spin but the reality here is this is not this is a place where there is a significant majority mm -hmm. which looks like it might go the other way yeah it's i mean the look majority for three by-elections but it's one that that actually looks quite likely to go Labour's way. Yeah, and, I, and as many people know, obviously polls are still open, so I, I won't um, I won't say exactly how, you know, I won't say for sure which way it's going to go, but people will know that I have a lot of connections to Uxbridge and South Ryslip. I stood against Boris um, in the last general election, uh, and I would absolutely say I would be shocked tonight if Labour have not taken um, that seat, and I think that that is the feeling within the Labour Party as well. Mirdad, what I'm interested in, for our listeners who may not know, you have been one of the most fervent campaigners against Islamophobia in the UK uh, in the mo most recent years. Uh, your work in the Media Monitoring Centre in the Muslim Council of Britain, but also as an individual, you have been, I would say, at the very forefront, uh, I don't think there's anyone ahead of you, in fighting Islamophobia in the UK, and I really commend you for that. Boris Johnson has obviously been uh, someone who has been repeatedly um, had allegations of Islamophobia made against him. He most famously wrote the article where he compared Muslim women to letterboxes. Um, and he has a whole history of, of alleged racist comments in his past. So I wonder whether you can speak to not the polit politics in terms of the party politics of it, but could this be a significant moment for the country to move on from this sort of divisive, nasty, uh, racist in some ways form of politics? Are you more hopeful? I'd love to be hopeful. I really would. Um, and in many ways, we can draw certain lines under what's happened with the, the Conservative Party when it comes to Islamophobia. If Boris Johnson, if, if this, this election means it's the end of Boris Johnson's career. Firstly, I don't think it necessarily does mean it's the end of his career. I think he's always got a way to potentially come back. If Trump wins in the US, who knows what that means for, for, for Boris Johnson here and what people might try and create in terms of a narrative about populism and how it, how it remains. So I think that's one thing to know, that it's not, it's not the, the nail in the coffin that, that some people might be hoping for. But I think the broader question is actually, you cannot solve the problem of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party without acknowledging it and actually tackling it head on. 
Can you talk and, a little and, bit about that Islamophobia, just for people listening, if they have no idea what the Islamophobia, the scale of Islamophobia in the Conservative Party is, can you open that up a little bit for them? Yeah, of course. So the, the challenge of Islamophobia in the Conservative Party is long-standing. It, it encompasses leadership, so whether it's Boris Johnson, whether it's actually during Theresa May's time, some of the quite virulent things that are happening from specific MPs talking about Muslims in very, very derogatory ways, sharing stuff from Tommy Robinson and the far right, um, and, and actually... Um, being quite hateful towards Muslims, um, whether that's to do with campaigning, like the Zach, the the gold, um, the mayoral election against Sadiq uh, Khan um, and Zach Goldsmith election in particular, you know, some of the virulent Islamophobia that was part of that campaign that was mm -hmm. almost signposted and, and supported by by the senior leadership yeah. and, and one of the most famous ones of that against Sadiq was the the picture of the seven seven bombings that was that was placed in an article uh, surrounding that mayoral election and it was very clear that link was being made to Sadiq Khan and and it's, it's you know it, it, this is not something that senior members in the conservative party were unaware of I mean Ken Clark famously spoke about it afterwards you know this is a stalwart conservative former chancellor of the exchequer talking about how this was a disgusting campaign or a nasty campaign the words i can't remember exactly what he used but it was the same you know it was a recognition that this was a racist campaign you know senior members of the conservative party publicly on newsnight and other places highlighted actually they, this is not the way they should campaign but why was this possible why could you mm -hmm. why could the whole party machinery be comfortable with running a campaign that was so clearly um trying to get to the bottom of the the, the hate that the, the, they want to try and yeah. get against um, Sadiq Khan. And, and that's, but, know, but, that's about his Muslimness, right? But it wasn't just um, a political campaign, was it? We've had data that suggests that this these kind of views run all the way through the membership of the Conservative Party. There's there's polling from Hope Not Hate, which lays this out quite quite clearly. A significant proportion of, of the Conservative Party membership believe that Muslims aren't, you know, have very negative views of Muslims. That could be for example, saying that there shouldn't be a Muslim prime minister, that could be saying that they don't, they think that Muslims are a bad, um, are, do not un understand the British way of life. Um, there, there are many, many categories through which you can see that through leadership, through campaigning, through mm -hmm. polling, you can understand the, yeah. the, the virulent nature of Islamophobia in the party. Yeah. And, and there, there's case after case of MPs who have had nothing done to them when when these complaints have been yeah. raised. Now, and I think, has been, yeah. so the reason I talk about Boris Johnson is because it seemed like similar to Trump, his election meant that all of this Islamophobia that, that as Saeed Awarsi said, had kind of passed the dinner table test and was existent in our politics long before Boris Johnson. But when he became prime minister, it seemed like that went to the very top, like it got a stamp of approval. Would you agree? I think that's true, but I, I genuinely think like, you know, the the election of um, when Sadiq Khan won against Zach Goldsmith, that Boris Johnson wasn't wasn't prime minister at the time. Um, and and to be honest, that was one of the like that was an, a really quite a disturbing campaign because it was in London, yeah. a place which has you know which is massively you know multicultural, diverse, a large proportion of Muslims in the area, and still it was perceived that that is the right thing to do for the Conservative Party to to to, to basically say, I don't care about Muslims here. I'm going to be actively Islamophobic in the approach that I take on this. I mean, th for me, that was the epitome of. How can that get through all the way through? And remember, mm -hmm. during that campaign, the then prime minister at the time mm -hmm. made a claim about Imam Suleiman Ghani that he had to remove, yeah. um, that he had to I, retract. One of, the, one of the things that I think is really important for our listeners to know is I, I have worked in the political machinery of the Labour Party and I know the Conservative Party is not that different. In order for these things, whether it's the leaflets, the articles, the messaging to get through, I think people need to hear 
how many like you're mentioning how many levels of approval it needs to go through usually there'll be a there'll be a copywriter at the bottom who will write up the text and there'll be some sort of political strategy they'll be given instruction on what kind of direction to go to that is then seen by their superior it then goes to a campaign committee who will see it and the candidate themselves usually will have to sign it off so there's two or three different check marks in which this can be stopped and someone can go guys there's a little bit racist, right? <laughs> but the fact that it keeps getting through all those processes means that there's a serious problem. Exactly, and the fact that, and remember this, the then Home Secretary at the time, uh, Theresa May, who ended up being Prime Minister, um, the Defence Secretary at the time, Michael Fallon, um, he, he had to uh, pay damages because of what he said in public. David Cameron, the Prime Minister at the time, all three made comments which were outrageous when it mm -hmm. comes to Sadaka. And, and why do they make that as part of the Zach Goldsmith campaign? So my point is the entirety of the leadership. So this was a strategic decision that wasn't just made off the hoof by mm -hmm. mistake. This was a strategic decision made with support from the entirety of the leadership, or at least in public, the entirety of the leadership, mm -hmm. as well as everybody throughout. And, and you didn't see resignations from CCHQ, from people who thought this was outrageous. You didn't see that. Well, there's, there's not just tacit acceptance. This was endorsement and driving from the center. Yeah. And that's where the problem lies. And, and what I think the biggest challenge when it comes to the Conservative Party is there's not really been an acknowledgement that this has been a serious problem. There's not really been a, we got this wrong. We need to fundamentally change to win. And I, I think that's because it has been a winning strategy. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, not, it's not held them back to yeah. talk in this way. But also, um, I mean, the, the support that you'd expect from from media organizations to publicly call them out as much as they could and should. Yeah, but there's also been I mean, you've worked with the Muslim Council of Britain for a long time. There has been an active boycott from the Conservative government in working with the Muslim Council of Britain. And I think folks should recognize that the Muslim Council of Britain is the largest umbrella organization of Muslims in the UK. It's widely seen by most organizations and most Muslims around the country as the sort of voice of Muslims across the UK. Yet the government of the day, the conservative government of the day, which have massive allegations of Islamophobia, just refused to engage with MCB. Yeah, and I think it's even broader than that. It's not that they're not just engaged with the Muslim well, We're just having some technical Muslim issues. Voices, um, we're not the only organization out there. Th that's fine. Mm. What, what's, what's a challenge? Is they're not engaging with Muslims generally? Yeah, you know the Muslims who've been involved in working with you know uh, different governments through time aren't being engaged with, and, mm. and even the softest of the soft Muslims who who aren't willing to even stand up on issues to do with Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, even even Muslims who literally have nothing wrong, wrong with them in any way suddenly get kicked out because there's one allegation made against them. It is an outrageous and actually dangerous state of affairs yeah. where a significant minority of Muslims of, of, our, of our country, Muslims in this country, have, have no voice when it comes to um, community relations in a way that many other faiths do. And, and I think that the, the way that the government has dealt with this and actually, you know, relations with Muslim communities across the, across the, the different political um, policies that are out there is, is outrageous mm -hmm. and, and needs to change. Uh, so a lot of the work that you've done has not just been in sort of the the partisan political space, but it's also been in the media space. Like I said, you were the director for the media monitoring at MCP. Um, a lot of this Islamophobia has infected and in large part is being driven by mainstream media across the UK. Can you talk to us a little bit about the scale of Islamophobia in our media and what kind of impact that has around the country? Yeah. Because really, I, th I think if we look at it, 
the media Islamophobia often drives the political because our politicians are so spineless often they just regurgitate what they what narrative the media are running. So can you talk to us a little bit about Islamophobia in the media? Yeah. Look, case after case you see in the media where Muslims are perceived or created, there's this narrative about Muslims, the Muslims are evil, the Muslims are linked to terrorism, the Muslims are anti-Semitic, the Muslims are, are, are don't, don't like free speech, the Muslims are against all of our values. Again and again, you'll see this narrative. And it's not about one individual story, although you can talk about one in five Muslims that have sympathy with jihadis as an example of a lie that was retracted from the front page of the sun. It could be the front page of the Times talking about Muslims silent on terror. You know, these types of things come up again and again where Muslims are linked to terrorism. And, and it's just outrageous, right? It is disgusting. And often the authors of these articles find, find these headlines disgusting as well, but often they can't speak about it or choose not to. Um, but what's what's not just it's not just the most obvious hateful nonsense out there which is which creates that narrative and and and, and drives hate towards muslims according to academic papers not just that it's also the, the the subtleties right it's also about the the fact that they don't there's so much ignorance and idiocy you know that there, there, there's a there was a headline which was saying that um muslims were upset because banknotes were halal we're not halal. Yeah, I remember and, seeing and, and that. You're thinking like, do you know what you're talking about? There was a Hindu group who had an issue because there was some some um, cow-related um, um, uh, derivative within the banknotes and there was an issue with the Hindu community. And they somehow decided to make it about halal. Why? Because halal sells better. Halal looks... And it was a lie. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they were like, millions of people in, in, in Europe are, are there willing to kill kill us. It mm -hmm. was a headline in the Express, a, a, a slightly... Um, uh, slightly different but, but that 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 message and it was based on an individual um, view of one pollster like you, you think about this stuff and it is beyond disgusting that this stuff gets out there now, that, what, 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 worth what do you think drives it I'm really curious because is it just that, that some of the leadership are genuinely racists and don't like Muslims uh, is there a political objective is it a case of divide and rule what's driving this so I think that there Because you've are, met with editors, I assume, and leadership yes, of the papers. We've, we've met with a number of them. Look, yeah. some of them are good, decent people who actually, you know what, if they get talked about, they talk about stuff, they, they, they'll change their views. Um, the, the, the editor of The Express is someone who, for example, looked at what happened and said, I am not writing a front page attack on, um, on migrants again. I am not going to have an Islamophobic front page. We have had Islamophobia in our paper before. It's not happening under my watch. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect in the expressive by any mm -hmm. stretch of the imagination. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that was a decision made by the editor, Gary Jones, mm -hmm. and he publicly admitted it in the Home of yeah. Select Committee. And, and that follows and conversations you guys had with him? These are public as well as uh, there were after conversations we've had with him. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm not saying that we were the reason for it. I think he himself has a very strong view on some of these issues and, and made his own judgment on them. But what, what I think is really important is they can make those changes. Look, you can be very right-wing and not be Islamophobic. It's very possible. <laughs> you, know, you can have a left-wing, right-wing perspective and not be Islamophobic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's you can really also be very left-wing and be Islamophobic exactly, or not exactly Islamophobic. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not a left-wing, right-wing thing. It's a choice of whether you want to be hateful um, um, and, and structurally racist to, to, to a minority community. And, mm -hmm. and I think that what we see in, in this is there is that potential. However, I think that there are many who ideologically believe that Muslims are a threat in our society. Mm -hmm. Genuinely believe so. They, and they will, they will, you know, they will speak very nicely. Oh, you're not one of them, or it's not everybody. I'm only talking about that group. Whatever. But yeah. they have an underlying view 
that Islam and Muslims are a threat to our British way of life, that they are taking over this country in some way. It is their view that is, and they will take, that is the narrative that they want to build in, and, and, and corroborate again and again and again. Why? Because it justifies their responses to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that helps them because when it comes to the culture wars, what you need is an enemy. And yeah. this is a really easy enemy. Why? Because Muslim communities are generally poorer, aren't very well organized, aren't able to stand up for ourselves as much as we, we could or should do, and, and an, are an easy target. And unfortunately, the biggest problem here is that we, the allies that you'd expect from other people to stand yeah. up and say, you know what, this is unacceptable. Yeah. You're not going to get away with this. Unfortunately, this I also think from a political perspective, the perspective, the greatest currency in a political campaign is fear. And the easiest way to drum up fear in our society right now is those dangerous Muslims are going to are going to attack our way of life physically, but also ideologically. And, 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 it, and it goes to, you know, that fear is not just the terror. It's not just the ideology. It's also the grooming gangs. It's also the mm-hmm. pedophilia. It's literally the worst things. If you think about the worst crimes you have, you know, pedophilia and rape um, of, yeah. of, of young children, um, murder and yeah. terror these are the things yeah. that, that, I, that, that are associated with Muslims and, I, and, and I, as well. what I'd really urge is if anyone listening or watching back um, uh, and you can listen to this show back on podcast form um, is just go on either myself or Miqdad as the two of us are talking right now go on our Twitter pages and pick whatever tweet you like and look at the comments underneath almost always there'll be some sort of link to grooming gangs or, or or soft on terrorism or apologists for terrorism and that's the sort of stuff that people get thrown with and that's what I want to talk about lastly we've spoken about the sort of environment of islamophobia in our politics we've spoken about the environment of politi- of islamophobia in our media i want us now to talk about the impacts that has on real people we spoke about sadiq khan i've met sadiq khan countless times engaged with him countless times every time i do that he's surrounded by security officers no other politician I know has had that. I've, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader, when John McDonnell was shadow chancellor, I engaged with them. I've, I've met with Keir Starmer on numerous occasions, never had security around them. Sadiq Khan always does. When I was standing in Uxbridge and South Rice Step, I myself was the only candidate that had plainclothes police officers on the doorstep with me at our rallies. Uh, we received more death threats than I think anyone else. My door had to be reinforced because um, we, were, we were concerned about sort of... Uh, what was it sort of arson sort of stuff that they put in the mail and put through your door because we'd had a threat through the door this is the real life impacts that are happening and we've obviously had incidents where muslims have been killed on the streets so can you take us through a little bit about the real life impacts this isn't just stuff on papers and headlines and news and twitter and other things people have died in this country as a result of the islamophobia yeah very much so you have you have you know many who have died individuals whether it's a uh, 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 individuals going to mosque whether it's uh, someone trying to run them over with a with a car whether it's um you know torture you've had people who've had their kneecaps attacked you've had muslim women young muslim young girls being uh, being attacked and abused on the street you've got verbal abuse you've got physical abuse you've got literally hate crime there's more religious hate crime against muslims than against any other faith community by by three times as much mm. almost home you know, office figures is, yeah it, it it is out the, the level of hate is obviously quite significant now i want to to try and put another element here that's not to say that it's not better than many places in europe that's not to say it's not mm-hmm. better than the us it very well might be in, in fact it, but know, it's not a race way, to the bottom is it we're not there's no race to the bottom i i i i, I want to put this in the real space that it's probably better than a lot of europe and the us but 
it's still bad and it's really mm. bad and and what what some people have this worry that you know are muslims asking for so much i mean asking not to have hate crime against one another not having structural racism these aren't ex, you know big expectations you know we can ask for equality and fairness we're not mm. asking for favors it's yeah. about fairness I mean, I, think, I, think I always find I always find that amazing, right? At least you don't live under Trump, or at least you're not in France under Le Pen. Like that's some sort of win. Exactly, I, and I, I I think that you know, it's fine to acknowledge that. Look, we, we can we can stand back and we say we can acknowledge. Yes, it's not as bad as that. But but does that mean that in a society that we want to live in, it's okay for um, women to have their um, headscarves ripped off from them because they're walking like that on the street? Do you think that women, Muslim women who are scared to go at the front of or near train platforms because they think they're going to get pushed because they've seen some videos to show, showing that, you think that this type of stuff is okay? You want you think that after a terror attack when my uncle tells me, don't you dare go out in the public space this today, that's something that you think that, these are experiences that Muslims all the, all the time across the world, well, across this country will have. Everybody will have an experience like this. Going running, I've gone running, and and my, my my friend who was running with me had an egg thrown at him, and he was wearing a thong. Look, th this stuff happens. You know, a friend of mine got beaten up on the on the train. She, you know, it, this is this is a reality. I think there was a poll which said that ninety percent plus of Muslims know someone who's been attacked physically about or, 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 or when it comes to um, Islamophobia in some way. I mean, this is. It, this is a real different experience that Muslims will mm -hmm. have that people not, don't necessarily understand, appreciate. And, 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 and until that's recognized and actually ta actions taken against it, mm -hmm. um, there will, nothing will get better. And, and, and on this action, this is so key, right? If you look at the hate crime action plan that the government instituted a few years ago, and you look at how the progress against the different things that it mentioned, you'll see how little was done on Muslim-related issues. It's mm -hmm. astonishingly bad. It's it's open. It's in the public space. Money is not being provided in that space when it's given to other faith communities and not given to Muslims. And you think, okay, you know, it's great the government might want to give money um, to help places of worship, but there's different levels. Mm -hmm. If you're a certain group, then you get everything. If you don't, if you're a different group, you get less. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. Mm -hmm. Fairness, equality, consistency. It's not that too much to expect. Yeah. And we should be demanding that. So, because that's a society that we should be living in and seek to live in. McLeod, we're, we're running out of time. I'm, I'm definitely going to have you back on because I also want to talk about the Islamophobia in the Labour Party, which we haven't touched uh, on, but I'm sure we'll get you back to talk about that. Uh, the last thing, I always like to be a little bit hopeful uh, <laughs> at the end. Um, you're doing a lot of work tackling Islamophobia. Like I said, you're at the forefront of that. Someone listening in, that has been inspired by what you said, whether Muslim or not, and wants to tackle this form of hatred, ready to roll up their sleeves, what would you tell them to do? Oh, what to tell them to do? Um, get involved. Um, if, you're, if you're someone who can be an ally, be an ally, speak out, be, in, you know, be a supporter. Um, look at those who look at the victims of Islamophobia and support those victims, those who are standing up. It's not just it's not about you. It's about how you can support the victims of Islamophobia in the most effective way that you can through mm -hmm. through money, through your actions, through your time. Any of those things can make a difference. If you can yeah. be an advocate and support of victims and an ally of victims, that's that's. What, and that's and what specifically, as it comes to uh, yourself and MCB, uh, shout out your Twitter because often you, when something's put out in the media, you will often encourage people to put in Ofcom complaints and other things, and that has we have seen that help, and we have seen um, articles reversed and changed. So, do you want to shout out your sort of Definitely. your social so media? Mine is at McDad M I Q D A A D, and uh, my the Centre for Media Monitoring is at CFMM UK. 
feel free to reach out whenever you can and 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 we can try and support you and if you look at the stuff that we do hopefully you can support where we can amazing that was Mikdad Vasi director of media monitoring at the Muslim Council of Britain uh, who is at the forefront of fight, fighting Islamophobia in the country you heard his social media posts there so you can go and follow him and and, and see what they are up to more power to Mikdad uh, and everyone fighting Islamophobia I think he so eloquently and passionately put the case uh, of the scale of Islamophobia in the UK politics, uh, in our politics and in our media more broadly. Moving on, uh, as I said at the top of the show, uh, we're doing things a little bit differently today. Uh, so rather than focusing on a theme that may have popped up uh, in our politics, as it's by-election week, um, we are going to be talking to Carmel Ahmed, journalist at The Guardian, covering international development. He has written an amazing book, I Feel No Peace, Rohingya Fleeing Overseas and Rivers. He's going to be talking to us after this message. Fubar Radio presents Access All Areas. We have the absolute icon, mm-hmm. legend, Janice Dickinson. I'm here. Do you still enjoy doing reality shows or do you now see it as more of like a part of your job that you like have to do? I do I do really enjoy it. I do I don't enjoy the actuality of eating fish eyeballs. <laughs> well, yeah. There's that side to Amazon. Or vagina of cow. Yeah. But you do like the sort of social I, side, do you? Like just the The social side was fantastic. Just getting to know people mm. and uh, sleeping with people and eating with people when we didn't really have enough food. Access all areas. Every Wednesday. Fubar Radio. Fubar Radio presents. As handsome as you imagine. What did you have for breakfast that morning? Almost certainly a pie. For breakfast? Yeah, because we started really, really early, right? At the butchers. Yeah. We started proper early, at yeah. like 7 o'clock. I would have had at least six pies. A day? A day. That is a lot of pies. No, no, because we sold them at the shop. That is a legitimate answer to the question, who ate all the pies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From 1pm every Monday... Welcome back to Politics Uncensored at FUBAR Radio. I am your host, Ali Malani. And today, uh, like I said, doing things a little bit different in the studio, I've got with me Carmel Ahmed, a journalist at The Guardian covering international development and author of a brand new book, I Feel No Peace, Rohingya, Fleeing Overseas and Rivers. Carmel, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Uh, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your book and why you decided to write it. Bearing in mind that for a lot of our audience, they'll be hearing the word Rohingya for the first time. They'll have no idea what it is or what the situation is. So tell us a little bit about what brought you to write this book um, and and the situation surrounding the Rohingya. Uh, well, yeah, for me, it started the same way. The Rohingya were people I hadn't actually ever heard of. They're a quite small Muslim minority community from Myanmar. And um, just over 10 years ago, like... I saw for the first time like a news report about them and was really kind of like shocked that I'd never heard these about these people and w- what was happening at that time was they were kind of facing constant violence from Myanmar the the country they were born in the, the, where they're from but has rejected them mm-hmm. and like in the 80s took away their citizenship and has just like increasingly kind of ramped up violence and persecution of them in a way that a lot of people describe as genocidal mm-hmm. and I just once I became a journalist this I kind of became increasingly interested in them and just saw that there was these people who uh, lived just across the border from Bangladesh I was seeking refuge in Bangladesh often being turned away um, and just caught between two countries caught between Bangladesh and Myanmar rejected by both mm-hmm. um, so they're in Myanmar and they're, they're, in they're, Myanmar. they're a religious yeah. minority in Myanmar. Well, they were in Myanmar. They mm-hmm. were a religious minority in Myanmar. There's still some in Myanmar. But 
what happened in 2017 is most of them got expelled by a really extreme campaign of mm-hmm. like military and operations. where did they go and they went to bangladesh to where now they're spread in several countries but the most the largest amount of Rohingya are now in Bangladesh in refugee camps, mm-hmm. which are now the biggest yeah. refugee camps in the world. And they were expelled. So uh, they, they had lived in Myanmar, obviously religious minority. And the aim seems to have been, um, from, from what I've seen in your work and others, was to really drive them out of Myanmar. Um, what did that include? Uh, you spoke about violence. Uh, I, I think it's really important for people to hear the scale of, of what they went through. So what it is, it's, it's decades of kind of repression and exclusion erasure they've been so since 78 they faced several military operations and in 1982 had their citizenship stripped away and this is from myanmar from myanmar state and it's included stuff like conscription to the military but not to fight in the military to like carry stuff Mm -hmm. for the military it's forced labor to build for the military it's people being taken away from their villages and being disappeared it's having schools banned and closed needing licenses to get married or to go to hospital um and as violence has got worse like attacks like burning of homes massacres widespread like use of rape again as a like tool of violence um just and like being kicked out and when when they've lived in they mostly live in villages but where they lived in cities being kicked out of those their homes and cities and put into like concentration camps basically and what's the reaction been like from bangladesh because obviously they're muslims bangladesh muslim majority country but they haven't embraced them from what i understand bangladesh has basically because there's been several rounds of this violence for decades bangladesh has often accepted them for a period when the violence is at its worst and then asked tried to make them go back Mm -hmm. using tools like making life more difficult in the camps um bangladesh's position is that will take them when they really need to but this is like not our problem yeah um and there's a thing here that part of what Myanmar says is that they are bangladeshis it says it says like Myanmar is a buddhist country and that these are bangladeshi muslims who have kind of come across the border and trying to take over our country and so bangladesh is very sensitive about also saying well they're not actually ours so it it has so they found themselves almost as a people without a land yeah so in his worst periods, Bangladesh has accepted them like to give them safety, but not wanted to like have them long term. Mm-hmm. And that leaves them, yes, in that very difficult position where no one really wants them. Um, they have a place where there's centuries of like history. And I, people often talk about, well, who are they and where are they from? I don't think that matters. Like that's that's you are trying to put a people between borders that didn't exist 200 years ago or so. Yeah. And so... I think when most people hear Myanmar, they'll think of Aung San Suu Kyi and others. What's mm. the reaction been from her and 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 sort of international leadership? Because she's kind of a, perceived to be as this very peace-loving sort of hero to many. I think that's kind of been shattered now. But even to the Rohingya for a long time, like for a long, like the grandparents or parents of the current, like of maybe like a twenty-year-old now, would have fought for her, campaigned for her, wanted her to be become the mm-hmm. president but what they found once she got into power is that she wasn't first of all wasn't willing to fight for them like when she initially came to power there was just this idea of why is she silent on on when like you have like extremist groups calling the rohingya like 
cockroaches or pests and saying they should be mm-hmm. like wiped out and she's not saying anything and then when in 2017 when the worst violence happened actually kind of defending the military mm-hmm. and saying these are like legitimate clearance operations and then in court in like when they um Myanmar was taken to court for genocide in the international courts of justice in the Hague Aung San Suu Kyi defended the military she was their lawyer so massive like disappointment for yeah and I think I think that really was a turning point her sort of image of being um this revolutionary peace-loving person was kind of shattered um as you began to uncover this uh, I imagine you traveled out there quite a few times tell us about what you saw when you went there yourself so I traveled to Bangladesh not me and myself I've traveled to the like refugee camps in Bangladesh several times. The first time was actually 2015 before. So the camps existed. The camps have existed mm-hmm. for about 30 years. It was only 2017. The refugee camps in Bangladesh. The refugee camps in Bangladesh. It was only 2017 that made them the biggest in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's just, they're just bamboo and plastic. And you have, it's an incredibly congested area. There's no proper sewage or drainage. They're vulnerable to flooding to like if you when you see a storm you, you like see people getting up on their roof and trying to tie everything mm-hmm. down because their house can so can the conditions are really the bad conditions are terrible there's no education there's no there's really mm-hmm. nothing there's just a million people cramped into a million people a million people cramped into a tiny relatively small area with no resources and mm-hmm. kind of just left there and i imagine there's massive health issues as, yeah, as a result I mean, there's really no treatment. Like if you have your, if you have a health problem, you have like a little clinic maybe to go to, and mm-hmm. you get given like, and there were women like who who had been raped and had like burns, serious burns, who were given like cowpole. They were mm-hmm. given a cowpole. To treat. If there are some hospitals, you have to go pretty far. Yeah, and you don't have money because you're not allowed to work. Yeah, and so these are people who are my not religious minority in Myanmar. Uh, I presume as a result of their religion, ethnic background, they have, like you've described, faced violence, uh, sexual assault, burning of houses, and driven into refugee camps uh, where the conditions, as you describe, are horrible. Why is the international community so silent on this? Because even if we talk about uh, other cases um, where where people have faced massive persecution, violence, um, places like Palestine, for example, Syria, uh, as an example, Yemen as an example, we've all heard about it. But your book is the first time I've come across something comprehensive on Rohingya. Why the silence in the international community? It's a hard question. They're not the only example of this, but it's, it's a question that comes into my work. Is like, what makes people care? And I, one thing some like an aid worker, senior aid worker, once said is that, like with Syria, they were fully funded mm-hmm. the humanitarian operation because not because they particularly cared about the Syrians but because they didn't want Syrians coming and there were strategic objectives of Syria with Russia and the Black Sea but like with refugees they didn't want oh they didn't want them coming here they didn't want them coming here the Rohingya don't have a way to come here there's no risk of Rohingya refugees they don't have passports at all and they're only boat they do get on boats but they get on boats to Malaysia you Mm -hmm. can't get on a boat to you'd have to go around Africa yeah or you'd have to like get access through Suez you can't get on a boat to Europe, right, from, that makes a lot of sense. So, because there's no immediate risk of Rohingya refugees coming to Europe, yeah. the response isn't the same. Yeah, that that's one of the one of yeah, one because of the it's reasons. not it's not just solving the problem. Actual like eight like food rations have been cut twice this year. Mm-hmm. People are now I think 
the UN said it's average of 27 cents a day is the food now. Mm-hmm. Like what people are given for food. There's, there's really no, it's not even just solving the problem. It's now keeping like, them like alive is there's no interest in that. The money has gone down every year. And so what does the future look like? There's a million people in these camps. Uh, I imagine it's not just Bangladesh that they've gone to. You said they've gone to Malaysia. Some are probably not a lot, but some have gone to Malaysia. What does the future look like for them? Is it going to be indefinite, you know, generations after generations living up in these refugee camps? Is there a will to go back to Myanmar or is there not really a will there? One of the reasons I did the book is because this whole, there are people who have been born there who were born in 1990 and are still there. Mm-hmm. And they've, have all the same problems and there's lessons there that yes it looks like indefinitely they could be there unless anyone solves them solves the problems in Myanmar ensures safety um in Bangladesh in Myanmar there's no real people there are people who have been to Bangladesh three times now they've gone to Bangladesh been sent back gone back like been kind of batted between the countries mm-hmm. and so there's not that much will to go back and the problem is with why doesn't Bangladesh just embrace? I mean, I know every country, every country embracing a million refugees is going to be controversial, no matter where that is, United States, UK, France, Bangladesh. Um, but you would imagine that Bangladesh might be a bit more accommodating given that they're Muslims and they're, they're, they're fleeing. It's a Muslim-majority country. It's a difficult question to answer. Politics. You, yeah, it, politics. It's, it's politics. It's a million. They are also, where they've gone to is a very poor area. There aren't many resources. Mm-hmm. You could say, why don't they embrace them and spread them throughout the country? Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's but really I don't think we'd find any country around the world yeah, that would exactly. embrace a million it's not, refugees. It's not really particular. It's really hard to see the Bangladesh's policies, but I don't think they're like much different to anywhere mm-hmm. else. Um, and so, what, what, what should the call from the international community be? Is it a combination of providing? safe refuge uh, and legal passageways for Rohingya refugees to get out of those camps, whether that's in Bangladesh or anywhere in the world. I imagine there's got to be some form of justice with the Myanmar state and being held to account for the presumably the war crimes that have been committed against the Rohingya. What are some of the the moves that should be taken? There are one option some people talk about is creating like a safe zone within Myanmar just across the border probably quite a far-fetched idea but possibly one of the only ones that would give them like allow them to go back to where they're from like their villages Mm. otherwise somehow to create pressure on Myanmar to restore the citizenship give guarantees of safety but that needs a real radical change so the future really isn't in Bangladesh it's on Myanmar yeah it's the future is on Myanmar and I think because that's where they're from one of the problems is like when this all happened Actually, prior to that, you'd had like this whole like normalization with Myanmar. And there's an argument that they went too far. Like they appeased Myanmar too much because they wanted to normalize relations. And there were benefits that like the US and the West in general had from like economically from normalizing with Myanmar. And they were they were so willing to appease Mm -hmm. that they turned their eyes away from like the signs that this was coming. Yeah. The only other option really is if you can't solve that is other countries need to take the pressure off Bangladesh. Right. They need so, to accept Rohingya oh, as refugees. That's interesting. So I, I often do this with guests that come into the studio. Imagine Rishi Sunak is sat in the chair opposite you or Prime Minister Keir Starmer in the future, maybe, uh, very big maybe, um, was sat in the in the chair opposite you and you had their ear for 30 seconds to a minute uh, to tell them what they need to do. What would you say? I mean, you, first of all, put pressure on Myanmar. You need to like 
put pressure on the way that you'd have on some other countries, on the military, on the generals, and make them suffer. Like they need to actually not get away with it. But in the meantime, if you can't do that, um, there are so many Rohingya who are like losing opportunities, and you you end up with a generation who there's this idea of a lost generation. You mm-hmm. need to stop that lost generation and give people opportunity to uh, like have education to work and yeah i just mean we make something the thing is we've seen the capacity to uh, the 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 willingness and availability to do good when it came to ukrainian refugees uh we also saw that in hong kong they there was quite a lot of 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 those schemes created um for for people who were struggling in hong kong that for many reasons we all know hasn't been reflected to refugees often in the middle east or in africa um, but that's one of the things that could be done is to to, to provide mm. not just to the UK, the international community could come together and spread the the sort of the load on across the world, and that would be much easier to handle. Ukraine's a great example of like what everything that could be done really well, like of everything a lot of, a lot of what everyone's asked for in other refugee cases. You, you, in, with Ukrainians, they did it, and it's, it shows that it can be yeah. done. When the political will is yeah, there, it can yeah. be done, and like these are good examples. Mm-hmm. You should replicate yeah. them with others. And obviously, we've talked about the the pressure that the state could apply on Myanmar to stay in its military establishment, the military-industrial complex as well. Um, we've seen that being willing willing to be done in Iran, for example. There's been significant pressures on Iran mm-hmm. um, on its nuclear program, and similar could be could be done in Myanmar if if the situation was seen as. Um, uh, as serious enough i want to lastly talk to you about the way that you wrote the book uh so talk to us through the process that you went to put the d- book together um obviously it's difficult to write a book on issues that most people haven't heard of so what was the the, the struggles uh, and the journey in that regard i mean it was difficult i also started it in 2015 which was a couple of years before most people anyone a lot of people mm-hmm. had heard of it so that's in, like eight years that really yeah, the book took. in 2017 when the big massacres happened a lot of people then heard of it it was in the news for a few weeks and there was always the challenge of making people care and so i didn't want to write anything academic or too like kind of i, I wanted to make it interesting i wanted to make Rohingya's voices part of it as well mm-hmm. and so it was m- many trips and like hundreds of hours of interviews and i've tried my best to like th- there's a few people who are really focused on and this is their story yeah. and i definitely think you know having seen the book and read the book um, their voices come through. Uh, it's really quite accessible to read. So if, if if you're listening and you're interested in this issue, interested in international relations, human rights issues, um, or you're taken by some of what you're hearing, this book is absolutely accessible. You can understand it. You don't need to have a prior knowledge of what's going on. That's all really thoroughly um, explained. But what, I, what I'd also be interested in, obviously, once you write the book, you've got to get publishers to publish it. Um, and this is an issue that some might say, who, what, where? Uh, is that something you faced and how difficult was it to yeah for sure yeah. like during during that whole publishing process there was and just yeah that like and also like uh, well on this case some people thinking too much has been written even though much, not much is written or like is it is it like too depressing <laughs> i was mm-hmm. told a couple of times it's too dark yeah it's it's a difficult thing it's it a lot of what happens with publishing is not whether it's good enough it's will it sell yeah. and so for our listeners who who might have been um inspired by what you said wanted to do something um what can they do are there charities out there that they can they can help with um is it talking to their local mps to make sure that it's brought up in the house of commons um what what would you say that they can do to help of course there are charities um but i think 
as much as funding and money is important the pressure is important and mm-hmm. pressure to get education to them to to accept people to third yeah. countries it, it needs to be higher on the agenda that the, the and they can do that by just simply yeah. writing to their mps because the, the, i guarantee the money I tell that's you, needed is more than like yeah. donations i'll tell you something 650 mps i would be astounded if over a hundred of them could explain to you what's going on in the rohingya in any in even a basic level yeah and i think that's really what's important is a political will yeah, and, and that can be done by writing to your MPs. So the book we're talking about is I Feel No Peace, Rohingya Fleeing Overseas and Rivers. How can people get their hands on this? Um, you can get it from the publisher Hearst's website. Um, this is a code, Ahmed25, which if I would suggest ordering several copies of your friends because yeah. it's safe and delivery. But that gives so you 25, Ahmed25, 25, tw- 25%. 25%. That's an exclusive <laughs> for listeners on Fubar Radio. Ahmed25. Um, but otherwise, you you can, I'd suggest like asking your bookshop to order it. They might not have it, but they can get it in like a couple mm-hmm. of days. And it's obviously on all the other... Like, and you're a journalist at The Guardian. How can people keep in touch with uh, with your work? Um, the Guardian website or like yeah, my Twitter, Kamil Ahmed. Kamil um, Ahmed uh, yeah. on, on Twitter. Right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Everybody can get a copy of I Feel No Peace, Rohingya Fleeing Overseas and Rivers on Hearst's website and at all good bookstores. At Hearst's website, we've heard exclusively Ahmed 25. You can get 25% off for listening uh, to us uh, today. Make sure you go out uh, and uh, get it. One more time, I just want to say a big thank you to Kamal Ahmed for joining us in the studio. Uh, I'm going to be joining you all uh, coming back. We're going to go to the Vox Pops, my favorite parts of the show and that's where we go out to talk to regular people uh, about the issues facing the country and this week uh, we're talking about Rishi Sunak's university policy the controversial education policy uh, that he announced over the last week I'm going to be talking through that and listening to what people said in our Vox Pops after this message FUBAR Radio presents Access All Areas We have the absolute icon Mm -hmm. legend Janice Dickinson do you still enjoy doing reality shows or do you now see it as more of like a part of your job that you like have to do? I do. I do really enjoy it. I, do, I don't enjoy the actuality of, of eating fish eyeballs. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that side to Amazon. Or vagina of cow. Yeah. But you do like the sort of social I, side, do you? Like just the the social know. side was fantastic. Just getting to know people mm. and uh, sleeping with people and eating with people when we didn't really have enough food. This week we have Natalie Balmain, winner of Channel 4's Make Me a Prime Minister. We do have a serious problem with the standard of our public servants and the behaviour they display both in office and in ministerial office, no? Absolutely, 100. We're an embarrassment. Yeah. You no. know, we're we're a, a nation that once purported to be world leaders. But now with the people we have in charge, we can't even lead ourselves. Well, we are leading the world in terms of idiots and, and clowns. <laughs> and <office, I> <laughs> the dating show. Please do. Back in the day when it used to be like fashionable or uh, it was it was the thing to do when you'd go on Facebook. Yeah. And you'd be like, oh, I'm like in a relationship. What was the other one? It was um, it's complicated. Do you remember that one? Yeah, it's uh, in a relationship with yeah. or it's, it's complicated. complicated. But then what you used to do, you used to pop up on the feed. So you'd be sitting there. Yeah. Uh, and then your feed, it would be. Um, I don't know, Jess, whoever is now single, so you like that one, or do, poke them. Did you poke them? And then you give you them a little poke. Yeah. yeah. Give a little virtual poke. Yeah. Um, just to go, I see you're single now, babe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, oh, Facebook were great, weren't it? You're listening to Foobar Radio. 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 
Welcome back. It's Ali Milani again. We've had uh, a really, really interesting show, um, and I think quite, quite a subtly passionate approach uh, from our guests um, so far today. Uh, joining me just now in the studio was Carmel Ahmed, uh, who has written a book uh, titled "I Feel No Peace: Rohingya Fleeing Overseas uh, and Rivers," um, and he's talked to us about. What I think most people haven't actually heard anything about, and that is the situation facing the Rohingya, uh, which are a minority community uh, that were in Myanmar, uh, that have been largely driven out as a result uh, of violence, uh, a campaign of persecution from the state, uh, and they found themselves over a million people in refugee camps now in Bangladesh, where, as you heard Carmel describe, the situation is really, really horrific. Uh, and earlier on, we had Miqdad Versi, Director for Media Monitoring at the Muslim Council of Britain, talking to us about the Islamophobia uh, crisis in UK politics uh, and in our media. When I started the show, I told everybody that I wanted to bring light to issues that are often ignored, uh, some of the passionate issues that exist within our communities um, that, that may not be given space in other forums. And that's what this has been about. And the wonderful opportunity that FUBAR Radio gives us is to bring these voices to you. Uh, is to bring these stories to you uh, in an uncensored way so you can hear Carmel describe in real terms what's happening on the ground uh, in one of the biggest humanitarian crises uh, in the world that no one is speaking about. You can hear Miqdad Versi uh, on our show talking about the scale of Islamophobia in the media. I can guarantee you as someone who often does media around the country, that's not something he would be so freely able to do. Um, and so I hope you stick with us uh, in our journey as we bring you more voices like Carmel's, like Mikdad's and others that you will have heard um, throughout the episodes we've put out. I, I want to highlight that you can go back and listen to all our episodes on Fubar Radio uh, on the website, on your podcasting platform, whether that's Apple or that is on uh, Android. But we come to my favorite segment of the show, and that's the Vox Pops. Uh, the reason I love this segment of the show so much is because it gives us an opportunity to hear from real people. Uh, we go out on the streets, and Carmel's a journalist. Mcdad works with the Muslim Council of Britain. I'm politically adjacent politician or activist, whatever you want to call me. Uh, but none of us are really normal people. Um, and I'm willing to say that now, that people in politics aren't normal people. Uh, as God is my witness, they're not normal people. So um, when when our wonderful producers put their, 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 their sneakers on and, and go out and talk to uh, ordinary folk on the streets of Islington. It gives us an insight uh, into what is breaking through from mainstream media into the general public. Uh, and this week, it was on education. Uh, and this is a headline that re really stood out to me, not least because I spent two years uh, as a student union president. I spent two years as the vice president of the National Union of Students. Uh, and so higher education specifically is very, very close to my heart. Uh, and the story broke this week that Rishi, Rishi Sunak is aiming to crack down on rip-off university degrees. The Prime Minister of... The British Prime Minister, sorry about that. British Prime Minister Rishi Tunak has unveiled plans for a crackdown on rip-off university degrees being offered by some universities in the country that do not lead to a decent prospect of a job for students. Uh, as, the as the part of the proposal unveiled by the Department for Education, university programs that do not yield favourable outcomes characterised by high dropout rates and limited employment prospects will face stringent regulations now in my opinion this is what happens when you make an investment banker the prime minister he doesn't know what he's talking about as it pertains to education i spent many years working with a conservative education minister higher education minister uh, and i've never had this level of educational illiteracy when it comes to policy when someone links an educational degree only to 
uh, your job prospects. It really tells you that they don't know what they're talking about. This is what happens when bankers start telling the education sector what to do because they are obsessed with this conveyor belt of setting up jobs. But that's my opinion. Let's listen to what the wonderful people of North London had to say. Do you have a degree? No. I don't. I do. I have a degree in, uh, it's a Bachelor of Design majoring in fashion. I do. It's in maths. I got a degree in physics. I did a Bachelor of Visual Communications and a Bachelor of Creative Intelligence and Innovation. Um, so I go to uni. I'm getting in my second year. And I do illustration. I don't think the degree that I did was necessarily great to give me the skill sets that I needed for the workplace, but it was great to get the connections from the university and get the foot in the door kind of experience. I didn't go to uni. Um, I'm just doing my own thing. I'm more for. I wish I did, but I'm more for creative, so just taking as it comes. I definitely don't have any regrets, um, as opposed to the student debt that I do have. Um, I'm not sure if it's something I'd do again. Uh, no, I don't regret, regret going to university, not for one moment. Um, uh, did I ever, I ever use my degree? No. It's worked out that I didn't need one. I can see why in some sectors you might. For the most part, it was like entry requirements to do what I was doing, like the grad jobs that I went into all had some requirements of having been to uni and, um, and getting certain grades. I'm an executive producer at Post oh, yeah. House now, and I don't think having a degree would have helped me any more than experience on the job. So though we have people uh, on the streets of North London being asked what the degree they did do and whether they regretted going to university. Um, now, what you will have heard is a lot of people saying, look, that my degree didn't necessarily lead into the job that I'm doing, the skills, the direct skills. Um, so I may have done English and I ended up uh, in engineering or I may have done politics and I'm on a radio show um, and, and learning how to use radio equipment and media. But the reality is that it is a serious misunderstanding of education by Rishi Sunak. Because education isn't just a training opportunity, it gives people critical skills. It, it allows people to leave home. It gives them opportunities for critical thinking. Uh, it allows them to explore what they love and what they don't love. Uh, it allows them to develop taste, understanding. Um, and there are a plethora, particularly in the arts, uh, of degrees that provide people with a whole roundedness, that provide the color to our societal um, sort of canvas that don't have job opportunities. So this really dumb-headed approach by the Prime Minister to, to crack down on universities just because someone doesn't end up in Canary Wharf pushing numbers and getting a job um, is it, really, really silly. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to work on apprenticeship, because it does. That doesn't mean that we don't need to tackle this sort of... this idea that oh, you're only successful if you go to university. Um, that absolutely does need to be done. Uh, but this idea that, that universities need to be cracked on, uh, cracked down on for what they call Mickey Mouse degrees is really a reflection on uh, the billionaire's prime minister, Rishi Sunak, and his uh, priorities. That brings me to the end of what I think has been a really, really powerful uh, and moving show. I want to thank all of our guests, uh, particularly Miqdad Versi, Director for Media Monitoring at Muslim Council of Britain. He spoke to us about the scale of Islamophobia in the country. That's something that that, that is obviously very close to my heart and something that I've experienced so you can go and follow him in the work that he has done Kamal Ahmed journalist at The Guardian joined us to talk about his new book I Feel No Peace Rohingya Fleeing Overseas uh, and Rivers and you can get that at Hearst Publishers uh, he gave us Ahmed25 as, as, as an exclusive code uh, for us to go and get 25% off uh, and I want to thank the producers and, and the wonderful people on the Vox Pops who talked to us about education I'm sure we're going to be coming back to this 
uh, in the weeks and months uh, to come. Thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, you can follow us at Politics Fubar uh, on Twitter. We're on Instagram uh, as well on polit- at Politics uh, Fubar, and you can follow all of our clips. You can listen back to every episode from the NHS to education to Islamophobia that we've done today uh, and a plethora of different guests, including people like Clive Lewis MP, Dawn Butler MP and Lord Heseltine who have joined us. Uh, you can do that on Apple Podcasts uh, and Android. I've been Ali Milani. I'm at Ali Milani UK on Twitter and Instagram and on TikTok. Thank you so much for joining us. See you all next week. Salams.